Good morning. For those who came in the far entrance down here, yes, that is snow all over my car. Those from Strathroy might understand a little bit. It took me an hour to get from my house to Townsend Road this morning. So, uh, yeah, about six inches in Park Hill, it looked like, on the roadway. So, I'm not sure where you're hiding your white stuff, but you did a good job. Anyhow, it's great to be here this morning, an opportunity to worship together and spend some time together and uh, to look at God's Word and uh, continue to remember in prayer um, those things that are happening this afternoon with the uh, gathering for those who want to be involved or thinking of being involved with a a monthly kids club uh, to begin to open the doors in that direction, Uh, also for the Blue Christmas. And I know, we put it in the family brief, I know the nursery is always looking for a couple of helpers and they're not shy to accept male helpers in the nursery either. So if you want to help out, um, there's lots of opportunity to serve the Lord here, and we do encourage you to pray about it and to think about it and how the Lord might lead you. Anyhow, you may recall from Scripture, um, continuing on in the Sermon on the Mount, but you may recall from Scripture, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now you'll recall Mary and Martha. They lived in the town of Bethany, about 10 kilometers or a two-hour walk from Jerusalem. They lived there with her brother Lazarus. Of course, Lazarus is the man that Christ brought back from the dead, his friend, that had been in the grave for three days. And as Jesus was traveling one time back to Jerusalem, he stopped off in Bethany to visit Mary and Martha. Martha welcomed him into her home. I'm going to pick up in verse 40. Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught, but Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, My dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, I have no idea if Martha suffered from generalized anxiety or not, but it's interesting that in her obsessive worry about the dinner, what these verses do show for us is they give us an example of what anxiety does in the life of a person. Anxiety steals from you, steals from you today and it robs from you tomorrow. It's a distraction, a distraction that gets in the way of so many things in our lives, the important things, and and it robs you of the present moment because you're thinking always about what ifs. Peter reminds us in the first epistle that God understands this, and he invites us. Well, Peter says it great in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at a proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Anxiety has been a huge issue in our world, well, for many years, for centuries, perhaps going back as early as the dawn of time itself. And it's hard to compare anxiety 
a hundred years ago with what happens today. But if you were to talk to mental health professionals and ask them what they thought it was like, they would tell you in their belief that anxiety today is at a pandemic level, especially among young people. I recently became aware of a, a video that was on TikTok. And if you're not aware with TikTok, I'm not on it, but it was presented in another format. Think of mini clips of YouTube, and you got the idea. But there was a, a short video that featured a, a university student. He was a server at Starbucks. And, and as he was videotaping himself at work, he was crouched down in this almost fetal-like position. And he was upset. Somebody had misgendered him. There were so many customers at the store, and they felt they didn't have enough people that could serve everybody. And in an uncontrollable crying at times, while still filming himself at the store, he begins to complain about the managers. He begins to complain about the employment conditions. He begins to complain about all the customers and and how they all want their coffee just right. And he put out there for everybody to witness the struggle that this person has with anxiety. In 1961, Time Magazine had a cover story, The Anatomy of Angst. It was written over 60 years ago, and the article was written in such a way that if I removed the date, you would be hard-pressed to guess that it was March 1961. Let me read a little bit to you. Not merely the black statistics of murder, suicide, alcoholism, and divorce betray anxiety, or that special form of anxiety, which is guilt, but almost any innocent, everyday act. The limp or overhearty handshake, the second pack of cigarettes or the third martini, the forgotten appointment, the stammer in mid-sentence, the wasted hour before the TV set, the spanked child, the new car unpaid for. About the only thing that might give this away is the exclusion of a mention of people self-medicating on cannabis. You realize Sarnia Lampton alone has over 25 legal dispensaries for cannabis? You want to double that figure for London. There's over 50 and more to come. But there was one paragraph in this very lengthy article in Times that stuck out for me. For centuries of Christian civilization, and not Christian alone, man assumed that anxiety and the guilt were part of his nature, and that as a finite and fallen being, yes, this was in time, as a finite and fallen being, he had plenty, he had plenty to be guilty about. The only remedies were grace and faith. When the age of reason repealed the fall, man was thrust back onto himself, and for a time, reason seemed to be an adequate substitute for the certainties of faith. That's amazing. Let's open up in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and for the opportunity to delve back into the Sermon on the Mount. We thank you for the practicality of your word and how it touches our lives. Father, may we be able to put away the distractions, the cares and the concerns from the past week and as we think of the week ahead, to take this time to focus on your word 
and which you have for us. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we turn to our text this morning, and I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 25. But as you turn to your text, and as we read through it this morning, I want you to note some natural divisions, and they will serve as our outline this morning. And the natural divisions is in each section we'll talk about, we find the word, therefore. And they will serve as our three divisions. Let's begin in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life and what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So whenever you read the Bible and you come across, therefore, you need to look back and go to your, and ask yourself this question. What is it there for? Do you catch that? So when you, when you see a therefore, you need to ask yourself, what is it there for? Why is therefore there? What does it connect? And in verse 25, our connection is with all the previous thoughts in the Sermon of the Mount, all that Jesus has already told us. The idea of the folly of storing up treasures on earth in verses 19 through 21. The trying to split loyalties between God and money in verses 22 and 24. Because this reality, because this reality Jesus tells us. So because of those realities, Jesus tells us, don't worry. Don't worry about the things of everyday life, your food, your drink, your clothing. The idea is to stop worrying. James Montgomery Boyce, in his exposition to the Sermon of the Mount, stated it this way. Actually, we have a case here in which the words have changed meaning. The meaning was just stop worrying. Therefore, according to Jesus... Christians must not be anxious or worried about anything. For worry, as well as love for money, possessions, and possessions, or a judgmental attitude toward others, will stifle the Christian life and ruin our witness. So we need to stop worrying. One commentator used verse 24 to give meaning to verse 25. If you are worrying, you're not trusting. And if you're trusting, you're not worrying. You cannot serve God and worry. I think the point is that worry centers us on the temporal, and it takes our eyes off of Christ. But there's a tension here, too. Actually, there's a lot of tension in our verses this morning and certain things that we need to acknowledge. You cannot look, we cannot look at these verses and throw away what we might call proper concern. Proper concern for us to be responsible for our provision, for the material needs of our family or others around us that are in need. So to do that is to toss aside all these other scriptures There's a balance between legitimate concerns, stressors, stressors that prompt us us into action. They give us motivation. So there's a difference between that and obsessive worry. To be flippant about all outcomes is not loving 
to those around us who may be affected by our decisions and our actions or our non-actions. So trusting God's provision is not the same thing as being flippant toward genuine needs. There's a tension. The theme of provision continues. Look with me to 26 through 31. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O ye of little, you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Once again, if we press this illustration too hard, it's incorrect. Jesus is not encouraging us to be nonchalant, have a lazy attitude, wait for that heavenly door dash to drop off our provisions. That's not what he's encouraging. Using nature, Jesus reminds us and the listener how God supplies both for the birds, and then he asks us a rhetorical question. Are you not more value than the birds? Though you worry, through your worry, can you even add one hour to your life? No. Ironically, studies tell us that chronic anxiety can actually shorten a person's life, causing both heart and digestive issues. Jesus continues to draw on this theme of nature, asking the listener to consider the wild lilies that dress the meadows, comparing those lilies to the most extravagant of kings, Solomon. If God can dress the field with the white lilies, how much more value is his crowning achievement to creation, man. Anxiety and worry are a sign of a lackness of willingness to wholly dependent on God. He refers to those who choose anxiety over trust as having a scant faith. I have many conversations. I'm a creationist. I'm a young earth creationist. I have many conversations with people, Christians over this too. And I think the big question I ask Christians when I talk about creationism is a question that's appropriate to be asked here. And I think each one of us, when we come face to face with that battle of worry and anxiety, need to ask the question, how big is your God? How big is your God? I mean, you're willing to trust Him for an eternity... How much more should we trust him for the little things each and every day of life? And that question essentially leads us to what Jesus is asking in verse 31. Look, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? 
See, God shows his care in nature. He provides for all that in nature. And because he does that, how much more valuable are we? A rhetorical question again. We are more valuable. So we should be able to rely on Jesus Christ. I think one of the problems we have today is we talk about miracles and we say, oh, that's not normative. God doesn't talk about miracles in the same way anymore. And I'm going to use the word miraculous in a different way. Not so much in a way of defying nature, although I'm not going to box God in. That's not normative, but he still works like that. But I'm going to talk about God working miraculous things out by defying the nature of man, by causing events to occur, and for people to respond in such a way that we would say, wow, God worked there. Look at what he did. We all think of, if, if you're a student of history, you've probably read, especially Christian history, you may think of George Mueller. And, and George Mueller was a, a preacher, he was a, a reverend, but he also ran an orphanage in Bristol, England. We think of one morning that they're lining the kids up for breakfast, and his associates are saying, why are you doing this? We have no money, we have no food. But God was miraculously at work. If you recall the story, the first thing that happened was an old milk truck, horse and buggy or whatever it was, broke down in front of the house. And rather than dump the milk out, the milkman walked up to the door and knocked on it. They answered the door and he said, well, rather than dump the milk out, I thought I should bring it up. And maybe you could use it for the orphans. And Mueller was like, yes, yes. See, they had already prayed for breakfast. They just didn't have anything to serve the kids yet. And the knock comes on the door, and it's milk. Shortly after the milk arrived, a baker arrives. And he says, I don't know why, but I was prompted in the middle of the night that I should get up and I should bake for the orphans. Are you able to use the bread? I have it outside. Mueller's like, bring her on in. And God provided. God still works miracles like that today. He still meets people's needs. Another story from the UK. Daniel and Noah live in East London. They're actually Canadians. They have four children. Illness not too long ago prompted a financial crisis in that family's life. Uh, the couple at that time had one boy five months old. When Noah's father in Canada, suddenly his health took a dive for the worse. And he was informed by his family here that dad would soon pass away. And if you want to see him, you better come now. So wanting to see his father one last time, Noah returned to Canada, but it cost him. It cost him his job. So now he was returning to Canada unemployed. Danielle had some money. They had a little bit of savings, but she had her maternity leave benefit. It was about 600 pounds a month. Their rent was 900 pounds a month, which was cheap for London at that time. But with almost nothing in the bank, they had to trust on the Lord. Noah found another job, but he couldn't start it until the new year. 
So they hadn't been at this new church very long when all of a sudden one of the families took Danielle on holiday while Noah was gone. Another person in the church threw her a Canadian Thanksgiving, so we know this was sometime in October. God's provision and inclusion of that family were shown in non-monetary sense here. And then what happened next? One day after Bible study, the pastor said to her, someone in the church who wants to remain anonymous asked me to give you this. It was for a check of about 2,000 pounds. As it turned out, once Noah started his job and he got his first paycheck, the money needed was exactly what was given to them. They were able to meet all their needs with that 2,000 pounds, pay their rent, buy their food, with that and what she was getting from maternity leave. God knew And he placed that needed sum on a person's heart. The person didn't know, but God knew. Look with me to the third, therefore, in verses 32 through 34. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The word Gentile can also be used to describe a foreign nation or a pagan. So legitimately, you could read the first part of that verse, for the, for the pagans seek after all these things. They look after them. They run after them. They seek earnestly they, with care and anxiety to meet their needs, but not so us. Verse 33 is the climax of this section of the sermon. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. There seems to be a nod back to a theme earlier in this sermon, and that was from Matthew 5, 6, where we read, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The positive command that we find here affirms Jesus is not prescribing an irresponsible, happy-go-lucky, freewheeling optimism or a fatalistic acceptance of the status quo. D.R. Carson states it this way, Jesus' disciples are not to simply to refrain from pursuit of temporal things as their primary goal in order to differentiate themselves from pagans. Instead, they are to replace such pursuits with goals of far greater significance. It isn't just a substitution. It's a replacement of the goal. It's a reference back to storing up treasures in heaven for ourselves. So it leads us to a question, and that question is this. Are we willing to submit ourselves to his kingdom? Are we willing to commit ourselves to his kingdom? To his kingdom principles, righteousness, spreading the gospel news of the kingdom to others around us, spreading the gospel news to our neighbors. Are we willing to do that? And if you are, if the answer is yes, then verse 34, 
Therefore, because you're willing to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness first, if you're willing to do that, then don't, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. See, in light of all God's promises to meet needs of those who are committed to his kingdom and committed to righteousness, he says, stop worrying. Stop worrying about tomorrow. Today has enough trouble. You have enough things to think about today. Why take on tomorrow's troubles too? To loosely quote one commentator, Jesus is also implicitly teaching, even for his disciples today, grace is sufficient only for today. It should not be used up for tomorrow. If tomorrow does bring new trouble, new grace will be provided. But there's a tension here again. What Jesus is not saying is that we don't live without concerns. So if I find myself unemployed, that's a concern. I'm not to be nonchalant or flippant about it. I need to trust God for his provision. And that provision might come from the generosity of those around me. Such situations are opportunities for you and I to do good works. And those good works may be set before us by God. But I would be sinning if the stress of unemployment didn't motivate me to do my part and look for work. I'm not to obsess about it, but that stress is not all bad. It motivates me to go out and begin to look for work. See, there's a balance here. Not to be obsessive, but take that stressor and go, okay, this is motivating me to go out. Another tension here. How do we square all these verses? How do we square them with the fact that at times, seemingly, Christians' needs go unmet? There are Christians that have died from a lack of food. There are Christians that have died from exposure. Well, not normative. It does happen. So how do we deal with those times when God seemingly does not provide? Turn with me to chapter, or Luke chapter 21. I'm just going to look at a few verses there. Luke chapter 21, verses 16 through 18. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. These verses plainly state that they'll be put to death. We're not told how or when, But we do know persecution through the centuries has many gruesome forms. Among them is death by starvation and exposure. But 14 chapters earlier, Jesus tells these very same disciples, don't be anxious. Now he predicts that some of them will die. But Jesus also says this, as he predicts, that they will die and there will be a death, he states not a hair 
of your head will perish. How does that work? How do I die but not a hair on my head is going to perish? Turn with me to another set of verses. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. I'm not going to read the full text. I'll let you read it, but I'm going to summarize, just lift parts of it. Starting in verse 31 of Romans chapter 8. What shall we say? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how do we not also with him graciously give up? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? who is at the right hand of God, and down to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. Verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when I look at these verses, and knowing that Scripture must agree, I think it means this, and, and I looked and looked and searched for this, and I found this wonderful explanation by John Piper Everything will be given to us that we need in order to do God's will, in order to glorify God most fully, even if it means death. Jesus isn't promising all the food, all the clothing, all the housing, all the health care, all the protection that we need to be comfortable or even stay alive. He says we're going to die in his service. He is promising that he will have every single one of those things in exactly the right measure to do his will and glorify his name, even if that means perishing from exposure or starvation in the path of obedience. They're hard words when you think about them. No one seeks out persecution, not like this. But I am told from those who have gone through very, very difficult times from other lands and other countries, missionaries who have found themselves in perilous situations with death facing them, I am told that in those severe hardship, God gives strength and peace that is beyond a description that I can give you and meets their need right where they're at. The only thing that I can compare to that to was when I had a father-in-law and a brother pass away in the same week that God met our need and took us through it. And they tell me, God will meet your need at your time to walk you through it. And no, you're not going to perish. Because to be absent of the body is what? To be present with the Lord. So we will not perish. God gives the peace and strength that we need. I talked about tension. I'm going to talk about tension again. Because I think we have to ask this question. What if I still worry? 
You've taken me through the verses, but Robert, what if I, what if I still worry? Here are a few thoughts, a few things to think about. First, this. These promises were made to Christians. And as harsh as that may sound, I would rather you think through your salvation today than to die in unbelief and end up in hell. Because at that point, it's too late. So first of all, these promises are made to believers only. Secondly, people struggle with different sins in their life. Everybody will struggle with something a little bit different. And that doesn't mean you're not a believer. It doesn't mean that Jesus has abandoned you. It just means you have an area where you struggle and you need to work on. But struggling isn't the same as giving up or giving in. Third, learn more about Jesus. Deepen your faith and your walk with him. In Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30, we read this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take, me, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. To learn more about our Savior and what it means to walk every day with Him. Fourth, make a habit of turning to God whenever you feel worry approaching. Learn to take your concerns to Him. And like all spiritual disciplines and habits, it takes time. And like all, some will find it easier than others. Five, I believe we also need to acknowledge that in our midst and in our congregations and in our own families, they will be those who suffer from the mental health condition. They will be predisposed to anxiety. It's commonly referred to as generalized anxiety or anxiety disorder. I can testify that you can learn from personal experience. You can learn coping mechanisms that will move you to a better place. Scripture is one. It's a great help for those who struggle with anxiety. But don't give up. Don't beat yourself up either. Some people will need medication. Taking medication for anxiety disorder is no more sinful than taking heart medication or something for your diabetes. So if you struggle and you need counseling, seek out a counselor. A few last, last thoughts to conclude on. As believers in Christ, we need to have our priorities right. And that begins with the pursuit of His righteousness, with living out the kingdom principles as we've been discussing these last 19 weeks, learning to depend on Christ and trust wholly in Him. Our trust should first and always be with Jesus Christ. And that is a result and should be a natural byproduct of understanding God's sovereignty, that He is in complete control. And in that, we can take much comfort, comfort knowing He is there for us and He is in control, that He is sovereign. 
We also need to stop living more than one day at a time. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't plan. Rather, the warning is against this obsessive anxiety over tomorrow. There are enough obligations in one day to concern us. But we can use, lose up, use up a lot of energy of thinking of our needs tomorrow and the next day. And the grace that God gives us is for that day, and we need to remember that. Otherwise, we'll take that grace and we'll start bringing in tomorrow's worries and, and everything will spill out all over the place. Lastly, remember what Peter said in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. God understands, and he invites us to do this, humbled ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Isn't that a wonderful verse? We cast all our anxieties on him. Yes, we're going to live with tensions in our lives. Yes, there are going to be things that we don't always understand. But that verse tells us that that doesn't mean God has stopped caring for us. That verse tells us that God is concerned for us. And while we don't understand it, well, we can't always put it all together like Lego blocks and build it up nicely for ourselves. We can cast those anxieties on him and we can go back and say, I can trust God because he is sovereign. I don't know the outcome. I know that there are tensions that I must live with, but I can trust the God that created this universe. I can trust the God that holds the future in his hands and holds my eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And, and Father, we thank you that you care for us. Father, may we be a people that take our anxieties to you. That through how we deal with the stresses of this life, whether it's employment or or, or just the mess that our world is in. How we can live confidently knowing that despite the chaos, you are in control and your will and plan is unfolding and that this world is living in rebellion to you. That we can find peace knowing that no matter what, you hold our future in this world and in eternity. And Father, may that be a witness to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our other family members that have yet professed faith in Jesus Christ. May that confidence in you help us to be bold witnesses to others of their need of salvation, their need of repentance, their need of coming to faith, that they too might have that assurance of a God that loves and cares for them, that they too might be able to come to 1 Peter 5, 6, and when anxiety comes into our world, that we can cast it upon you. And Father, for those who continually struggle with this, may we as brothers and sisters, Father, give us the courage to come alongside those that, trouble, that, 
struggle, not with judgment, but with love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.